Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. All right, look, we've got a lot to cover, so you better listen quick because I'm going to finish first, okay? And uh, I don't know what that meant, but it came out the way I wanted it to. We are about to enter into a discussion in effect about the Old Testament and then clearly the New Testament. We've gone through the first basic 11 uh, chapters of Genesis. We've talked about the beginnings. Uh, Grace activated. God's grace uh, as he begins to create the heavens and the earth, as he begins to, to create man in his own image. And we can see his grace all through that time period, uh, through that age, if you will. And we're about to hit chapter 12 in Genesis where he begins to talk about uh, Abraham. And we get into Israel and the law. And after that, we're going to talk about uh, the church and grace. So bear with me a little bit, because I want to introduce this in a way this morning. One of the whole purposes uh, for going through the Bible is to give us as much as possible either a refresher, a reminder, or a deepening, maybe all the above, of God's Word, and how are we to handle God's Word. There's a right way to handle God's Word. There's a wrong way to handle God's Word. How do we view the Old Testament as New Testament believers? Do we throw it out? We say it doesn't have any relevancy for today? Do we take what he says in the Old Testament and somehow apply it to ourselves in a way that is incorrect because it is under a legal system rather than a grace system? So all of those things to say, we're going to walk through this. I want to give you uh, just a, a snapshot view of this. And I want to encourage you in the midst of this spade work, okay, uh, there is some tremendous application for us in, in this uh, conversation because I think all of us wrestle at some point or another uh, of being in legalism, of coming under the law. And what does that mean? How as New Testament believers are we to walk? Let me just give you some uh, historical thoughts, okay? When we look at the timeline of human history uh, and we look at how God has dealt with humanity from Genesis on. There are, uh, and I'm sure you know this, I just want to remind you, if you don't know this, it's okay, come up to speed with it, but there are certain covenants, agreements, ways in which God has chosen to interact with people, uh, perhaps Abraham is an example of that, Noah is an example of that, even Adam is an example of that, and he's done so in a specific way for a specific purpose. There's the covenant, as I've said, of Adam to rule well, to rule over the garden, not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. There's the Noahic covenant where at the end of the flood, the Lord gives the rainbow and he promises that he will not destroy the earth again by water. Uh, There's the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to take some time to look at that, at least the beginning parts of it today. And that's a phenomenal covenant. It's probably the one that most people know the best. Right? Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse, etc. There's uh, the Palestinian covenant where the Lord makes a promise to Israel about the land. There's the Davidic covenant where the Lord makes a promise to David in terms of having an everlasting king on the throne. And there's more to that. There's the covenant for the church, which is in Christ. In Christ. There's the new covenant for Israel as we look towards the future which supersedes the Mosaic covenant, right? There's the covenant that was given to Moses, the law, 
And this new covenant for Israel supersedes the Mosaic, but it keeps intact the land covenant. It keeps intact uh, the covenant to Abraham. It keeps intact the Davidic covenant. So you got all these covenants. You got all these ways in which God is promising and God is uh, making covenant, if you will, if you want to put it that way, um, with different periods of time in human history with different people. I would say overarching that, over all of that, There are ages that you can see how God is interacting with humans in the midst of history. And I'm going to just give you four. Some people would say, well, there's more than that and everything. Oh, that's great. This is pretty simple in my mind. And I think it's true to the text. It's true to the way that we look at the word of God. There's the age of the Gentiles. We've kind of just looked at that, right? Genesis 1 through 11, the Tower of Babel becomes the culminating moment for that where the Lord disperses all the Gentiles, the nations, into the earth, confuses the language, and now people are spread out throughout all the world. We're about to go into the age of Israel, where God calls for himself a people out of the nations. He calls Abraham for himself out of the nations, and in the midst of that, there are certain things that he does. There are certain things that he's promised, and we're going to look at that a little bit. There are certain things that are not dependent upon Abraham to do. God has promised and sworn by himself that he will do this. There are certain things, as in the Mosaic Covenant, where people were supposed to follow what God had to say, and if they didn't do it, then there would be a consequence to it. If they did do it, there would be a consequence, in a good sense, for that. There's the age of the church. I believe that we're in that right now. And I would suggest this, these ages are very distinct. The age of the church is an age of grace. The age of the church is very different than the age of Israel. There's the coming age, which is the age of the millennium. Some people want to say we're in the millennium right now, and I I really uh, don't believe that that's biblical. I don't think that's an accurate handling of the word of God. And I think if you ask the people that are being martyred for their faith right now, uh, I don't believe they think that we're in the millennium. So there's a coming kingdom where Christ will rule on this earth physically and establish his throne. And we will serve the Lord on earth in the midst of that. And then there's the ages to come. Let me just give you some points, connecting points for all these ages, right? The revelation of God is progressive. It builds on each stage or on each age. God's revealed himself in certain ways throughout human history, and now, in effect, the culminating point for the the church age is that we get to see grace realized through Jesus Christ. And it's not that grace hasn't been seen in the past ages. We can see that all the time. We saw that with Noah when he put Noah and his family in the ark, the fact that the ark was even created. We can see it even in the Mosaic time when the children of Israel, as uh, Moses was going up onto the mountain in order to receive the Ten Commandments, they were down in the valley doing what? They began to form for themselves a golden calf and worship it. It was grace that God did not wipe them out on the spot. We see grace through all these things, but we see grace highlighted in a beautiful way through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an understanding of grace today that was just echoed at throughout the past ages. All ages, it doesn't matter which one you want to talk about, require faith for salvation. That's essential. 
See, the law wasn't given in order that the Israelites would have some kind of a stepladder to climb up, some kind of a, a, a standard that they were expected in and of them own, their own selves in order to meet. The law was given in order to expose sin. All through human history, the requirement for salvation in Christ, whether you were looking forward to the Messiah or now today as we look back to what God did for us at the cross and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is faith. I'm persuaded that what God has said is true, and I trust him. It's not about works for eternal life, for salvation. All ages, as I've said, have grace at some level. All ages have some form of merit. You understand what I mean by merit? We, we, we do something in order to get something. And I'm going to take a little bit of time to talk about that because in the, in the church age, this is a little bit different. In past ages, there were certain requirements, things that were to be done. In the church age, there are commands, instructions that are given, and how we understand what it is that God expects of us is essential to our walk with the Lord and our enjoyment of the victory that he's accomplished for us at the cross. We had a, a group of uh, people go down to UNM and... Um, All's kosher, uh, but we took some video and we asked some questions. And I want you to see some of the responses of people with regard to these questions about the Bible, about the Word of God, about the Old Testament. Now, one of the deep concerns that I've got in our day and age is that we are losing the meta-narrative. We are losing the story of the Word of God, that Jesus is the hero of history. And you can really see this as you begin to ask people about the Word of God and their response to what does the Bible say, what does the Bible mean, how is the Bible applicable to your life today. So just take a moment. We've got some people that we interviewed. And turn your attention to the screens, and let's, let's watch that for a moment. Do you own a Bible? No. Yes. I do not own a Bible. Yes. Yes. What version? Uh, uh, King James Version. Same. What do you believe about the Bible? The Bible is, too, is very similar for, from Koran and the book from Muslims. I believe it's the Word of God and that by reading it and we can learn more about Christ and be able to come closer to Him. I think it's got some significant spiritual information in it, but shouldn't be taken too literally. It's just like a set of doctrines set out for, for guidance for individuals who want to follow God. Do you believe the Bible is relevant to life today? Maybe for the people who believe in Bible, for me it's not relevant. I do, but I think sometimes people have a habit of picking and choosing what they want to like, express from it. And so you don't get the full story. And then there is, of course, some things that are just out of date. In the Bible, there's lots of stories that can help us in our daily lives, like be able to come overcome challenges and um, come, come closer to Christ, know who he is, what he did for us. It can be. I mean, obviously not for everybody. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah, it is relevant. It's um, Religion is still a really big part of a lot of people's lives. and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. It served its purpose 
uh, thousands of years ago. Why not now? I know it's been intermixed with pop culture, but it's still the same Bible. What is your favorite Old Testament Bible story? I really like the story of Esther because she um, was placed in a position where she could help um, help her people. It was between her life and the life of everyone else, and she ended up going in and and praying and fasting for the strength to go in and um, petition to the king that he would um, save the people. I mean, I've always heard that like some people think that it was like a different God, different version of God. He's a lot angrier. Drawing a blank on a specific story. I, you know, I might get this wrong, but I actually don't really know what the difference is. Is is the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is Cain and Abel in the? Cain and Abel in the Old Testament. Okay, cool. Yeah, I thought that one was a pretty cool story. A little bit of action, a little <laughs> bit of all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So, okay. yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. Do you know what the Ten Commandments are? I think I know like a couple. I mean, I know what they are. They're just like general rules and guidelines. Thou shalt not kill, shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. I think one of them is thou shalt not kill. It's one of them, thou shalt not steal. Is that one of them too? Do not kill, steal. Thou shalt not lie with another man's wife or something? I don't know the exact wording, but something like that. Um, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't commit adultery, don't rob your brother. I'm trying to remember like all the little things. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> you know, the, the one girl uh, who answered questions pretty decently, didn't she? I mean, Esther and everything, she's Mormon. We've got a challenge on our hands, folks. We, we have the Word of God, and we have the availability to study the Word of God, to get into the Word of God, and then to allow God to transform us, change us, mold us in such a way that the Word of God uh, begins to be revealed in and through us. Um, as we look at Israel and we look at uh, ch the church, law and grace, it's a fascinating conversation because it gets twisted up all over the place. And in the midst of it, religion gets thrown into this. You heard that commentary a little bit. People think of it as, well, it's a religion. Well, yes, Christianity in an overarching sense clearly is a religion. But we have a relationship because religion ultimately is a system where man needs to do something in order to be approved to God. Whereas Christianity, though it is a system, it's a certain uh, doctrine and set of beliefs, right? We recognize that it is what God has done for us. And so when we talk about the Old Testament, we talk about the New Testament, there are some things that are really important. I like what uh, Lewis Sperry Chafer says about this, because if you want to think of it in, in very clear terms, the difference between these two realms... He says the law formula, if you want to put it that way, is if you will do good, I will bless you. If you will do good, I will bless you. Can I encourage you in something today? 
I, I have conversations over and over and over with people, and that is how they begin to live their life. It comes out in all kinds of different ways. If I've just done good enough, then, then God will bless me. Or the converse is true. God isn't blessing me because evidently I didn't do good enough. Right? That's law. Here's the formula, if you want to put it this way, of grace. And Chafer says, let it be restated that the basic principle of grace is the fact that all blessings originate with God and are offered to men Man, us, graciously, freely, abundantly. It's not something we even can earn. And so the formula in effect for grace is simply this. I have blessed you, therefore be good. And I would say this, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. The doing good is not out of my own energy. It's not out of my own strength. It's because Christ now lives within me. And it's the enabling, sustaining, empowering ability of the Spirit of God who now has come to live within me. See, we tend to think of life from the perspective of I've got to do something in order to get and if I don't have, it's because either I haven't worked hard enough or I messed up in some way. Folks, that's legalistic. Because what you're in effect doing is you're saying there's something I've got to do in order to get God to show me favor. And in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? He already has. <laughs> We're already in the room. We don't got to do something in order to get in there. We just have to begin to recognize that it's in Christ that we have these things. And it's in his blessings that he has already given to us that we get to walk in as a result. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a great passage. He says, all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, a correction, for training in righteousness. And when he says all scripture, guess what? He's saying all scripture. He's saying the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. He's saying all that God has given to us, revealed to us, has had written down for us, is useful to us. But there's a right way to handle the Old Testament, and there's a right way to handle the New Testament. There's a wrong way to handle the Old Testament, particularly as New Testament believers. So let me give you some thoughts on that, because we can learn from Israel. We can look at the Old Testament as scripture, because that's what it is, and begin to be taught by the Holy Spirit about it and how it's relevant to our lives. But there are certain traps that we gotta be careful of falling into. The traps that we fall into can be devastating because all of a sudden, as grace believers, having already been blessed, we find ourselves being back up under a system or a legal system or the law a performance-based system that we cannot measure up to. Some of the traps and some of the questions that we need to ask as we look at the Old Testament is what's the principle of the passage? What's the principle of the passage? We may not necessarily take the Old Testament and all the de details of it and specifically apply it into our 
time in our relationship with the Lord, but we certainly look at the principles. We learn from the stories. We learn about the greatness of God. We learn about the faithfulness of God. We learn about the character of God. And we can certainly take that and apply it to our lives today. We can take how people failed and what they did and how they strove and how they tried to perform out of the flesh. And we can look at all those things and recognize that in our own flesh, apart from Christ, we would do the very same thing. So we can look at that. I think a great question to ask when you're looking at an Old Testament passage is, is it repeated, is it reiterated within the New Testament? I mean, what's being said in the Old Testament, is it also being reiterated in the New? And understanding that in the New, God has given us himself in order to walk in what he is saying for us to do. It's important to understand who the audience is when you're reading an Old Testament passage. Is it to them? Is this written specifically to Israel? Or is this a principle for all times, for all people, for all ages? There's several problems in this, and I I think I've seen this, and I know I've experienced this, haven't arrived in this, still work through this. All of us can trip and stumble in the midst of this conversation. When we do not look at scripture correctly, and we do not handle the word of God correctly, when we look at the Old Testament and we begin to place ourselves back up under the system, uh, just like the Galatian believers did, where they placed themselves back up under the very system that was to teach them that they needed a savior in the first place. What does it do to us? Well, there's several things. What I've seen is there is a deep insecurity developed within believers. Deep insecurity. Striving always to get something we already have, trying to attain or get God's favor by what we think we can do. And all kinds of problems come into that. We try to prove ourselves as as acceptable to God. I'm good enough, look at how hard I tried, Lord. Look at what we accomplished for you, Lord. And in the midst of that, we begin to be insecure. Why? Because rather than just simply receiving from the Lord his love and accepting that he's given it to us on the basis of himself and his own decision, we find ourselves trying to get something that actually in Christ, when we believe in him, we already have. So then the insecurity becomes, have I done enough? Or do I need to do more? And you find yourself on a spiritual rat race. Brutal. Anybody been there? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody been there? A wrong understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, a deep reliance upon self will lead to either really two things. Spiritual pride Look what I've done. And you all aren't as good as I am. I know nobody struggles with that. (laughs) Or what else does it lead to? A deep frustration at the lack of victory in our walk with the Lord. I can't seem to overcome this. I'm trying, Lord. I'm going to promise next time I'll do better. I'll read through the Bible for you. 
I'll go to church, not just one time. I'll go every time, Lord. I promise, I promise, I promise. My goodness. And fundamentally, why are we doing that? Is it wrong to go to church every time the doors open? No. Praise God. Come on. Is it wrong to say, you know what? I recognize that I need to read the word more. No. But what's the motive behind it? Is it to try to get God to do something for you? Is it try, in trying to earn his favor even more when he's already given it? Because then the frustration sets in. Then, then we're dealing with our own flesh. Now we're trying to accomplish the things of God in and of our own strength when it's very patently obvious, not just in our own personal lives, but in the history of humanity, that we are in desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen? Let me just follow it up with this thought. Chafer kind of puts this whole uh, picture in play in terms of uh, the grace walk. God's already blessed us, so therefore we can walk with God and be good. The requirements or the commands under the law are therefore on the plane of the limited ability of the flesh. When, when we talk about law, when we talk about what we're supposed to do in order to achieve the righteous standard of God, it is out of our limited ability to accomplish that. He says, on the other hand, grace being a covenant of faith and providing the limitless enablement of the power of the indwelling spirit addresses itself to the unlimited resources of the supernatural man. The requirements or the commands to be met under grace are therefore on the plain, catch this, of the unlimited ability of the spirit. Wow, is that great or what? Folks, we're without excuse. Oh, I don't have enough patience. Yes, you do. Why? Is it because you can come up with the patience in order to accomplish? No, it's because of the unlimited capability of the Spirit of God in us who is able to produce divine patience that supersedes my ability. Praise God. Oh, that person's driving me crazy and I can't love them. Really? Yes, you can. In Christ? I don't have the, you can fill in the blank. We've all been there. All I got to do is how many times have we prayed for patience in our life? And guess what? We already got it. Why don't we start thanking God that he is the all-patient one and that he lives in me and as I submit to him that I get to experience his power, his victory in my life so that I will experience the patience that is necessary for the circumstance that he's allowed in my life that's been filtered through his hands first for my benefit. Wow. It's essential to understand because if not, what it will lead to for the believer is deep discouragement, fruitlessness, fruitlessness, abide in me. And what's going to happen? You will bear much fruit. He's not talking about eternal life here. He's talking about for the believer. Walk with me. Just like Ephesians is a perfect picture of this. The first three chapters are all about who we are in Christ. As a result, chapters four through six, now, because you know who you are and you know what God has done for us that we could never accomplish on our own, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 
The ability for the believer is not in our own ability. It is in surrendering and yielding and dying to self and admitting to God what we're not. But that's the rub, isn't it? That's the rub. Because we don't like to admit that, do we? I don't. Come on, y'all look at me like calves at a new gate. I don't like admitting that. I don't want to have to say, you know what? I blew it over here. Or I've had this attitude. My flesh doesn't like that. My flesh is very proud, very wicked. I thank God that he went to the cross in spite of my flesh. Because it's in Christ, in him, that anything good comes out of my life, your lives. So as we begin Israel and the law, understand there is an important difference. I could give example after example. I was laughing with John because we heard one this morning. I'm not going to go into it. not going to go into it. I already heard one this morning where we take something from the Old Testament and immediately apply it to New Testament believers as if it's automatically true. If we will just do certain things, then this will take place. Folks, we gotta, it's so ingrained in the way we think. Our whole culture is set up that way. If you just work hard enough, you can buy the Lamborghini. Somehow that just hadn't worked for me. Abraham, there's three really essential parts in my mind to the story of Abraham. The first is his initial calling to follow the Lord, the promises that God gave to Abraham and that Abraham believed. We then see, and we're going to look at this next week and as we move forward, we see Isaac and Ishmael come on the scene. Paul's got a lot to say about them. Allegories. One of the bondwoman, one of the free woman. One of the promise, one of self-effort and the law. My goodness, trying to accomplish something for God. Boy, how has that worked out? And thirdly, his trust in the Lord with the sacrifice of Isaac. Wow, what an amazing moment. Abraham's an amazing individual. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and following with me. Hebrews 11, 8 and following. This is where we go to the New Testament in order to find out what is the kernel, what's that which we ought to be looking at within the Old Testament. What is, what is the thing that applies to us? And I would simply put it this way. God's word is truth, and we are able to trust him in everything that he says, even when it, it doesn't seem to make sense. Abraham, you're going to have a child. What? You kidding me, right? Sarah, laughter. And by the way, it wasn't mocking laughter. It was incredulity at what God was saying, which is why they named Isaac laughter. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's amazing. He didn't have a Land Rover. He didn't have dry wick clothing. He didn't have an RV. <laughs> By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Wow. 
By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. What a beautiful picture. It wasn't just Abraham, it was Sarah. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 and following, we begin to get a picture of Abraham's genealogy. He is a descendant of Shem, and his father is Terah. We know that he married Sarah, and we know that he moved to Haran, where Terah dies at the age of 205 years old, right? No longer the 900-year spans that we had seen before, but now we begin to see life being shortened after the flood, In Genesis chapter 12, we see the beginning of a story where the Lord literally chooses for himself a nation through a man, through Abraham, in order that the Savior would be born, providing salvation for all who believe. And we get this picture of God having taken all the nations and spread them out throughout all the earth, confusing their language, now accomplishing his purpose that he had talked about even at the fall where he gave the first echoes, the hints of the gospel of grace and he told the woman that he will hit your heel, the heel of your seed will be hit, will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. Beautiful. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord says to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. Isn't that great? Folks, faith is step by step. You never with God have the end already in play in the sense of the things that God's calling you to. We spend so much time trying to worry about the fruit. And all the Lord wants us to do is take that initial step and just step by step, moment by moment, He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God gives Abram a promise of land. He gives him a promise of a nation. And he gives him a promise that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 13, you know this story, I'm sure well. Got Lot going with Abram, and they uh, began to get rich. Long story short, there was no more grazing land, so they needed to split up. Lot takes the valley near Sodom. Abram takes this land that is just not really good for grazing. And the Lord tells him in Genesis 13, verses 14 and following, he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Beautiful. It's a promise. In Genesis chapter 14, we see Lot captured. He's down in the valley of Sodom. He and his family and many others are captured. Abram goes after them. The Lord gives them the victory, and we get this really amazing picture that I believe if you're in K group today, you're going to talk about, which is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. But who is he? (laughs) I personally love to believe that that is the pre-incarnate Christ. 
because he has no genealogy. I don't know. One day when we get to heaven, I can't wait to find out for sure. But Abram gives him a tithe of all the spoils. And that's a beautiful picture. In Genesis 15, the Lord promises Abram an heir. We're going to look at this pretty closely next week. But in verse 4, it says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. You know, the Lord is rarely early, but he's never late. Amen? How many times do we stress about that? Come on, Lord, don't you know what's going on? Well, Abraham and Sarah were no different. We're getting old. We can't even have kids anymore. I'm not going to have an heir. You promised me descendants as innumerable as the stars, as the sand, for heaven's sakes. I don't even have one kid. Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, man. How many times do we doubt God? The Lord loves to put us into positions where we just get amped, amped. And I can just see the Lord go, hey, Gabriel, watch, watch Eric now, man. Watch this one. Watch this reaction. But he loves to come through. And that's the beauty of it. He's always putting us into those box canyons. We have no idea where it's going to go. The problem is we don't wait long enough in order to see God really at work. We tend to take things into our own hands and try to fix it ourselves. And then we really mess it up. Amen? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I may be up here talking to you and telling you about what I go through, but I guarantee you go through it too, right? Genesis 15, 4 is such a beautiful picture because in verse 6, he tells him he's going to have an heir from his own body. In verse 6, it states this, probably one of the most famous statements in the Old Testament. Then Abram, he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, verses 2 and following Paul deals with this. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, was, was Abraham justified before God? Was he credited as righteous before God because of what he did? Paul says, if that were the case, he would have something to boast about. Verse 3, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's works could never be good enough in order for him to be credited as righteous. He believed God and therefore was considered as righteous. We have a story about his descendants, Genesis 15, verse 12. And the whole picture here in Genesis 15, and real briefly what I want to just bring out in that, if you read through this carefully... God made promises with Abram. What was Abram doing? God put him to sleep. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I mean, can you imagine? Oh, I'm going to cut covenant with God. All right, Lord, what do you want me to do? Great, I'll do it, whatever it is. Okay, I want you to cut some carcasses up and I want you to line them up and I want you to get it ready because we're going we're gonna to cut covenant. We're going to make an agreement together. So Abraham does that, gets it all ready, makes sure all the birds of prey couldn't come down on the carcasses. 
And then all of a sudden, Abraham finds himself in a position where the Lord goes, ah, you know what? Abraham, you you, you can't do this. You're not capable of this. So I'm going to put you to sleep. And I'm going to swear by my own name that these things are going to take place. May I cease to exist if I don't do these things for you. See, it wasn't what Abraham did. It wasn't what he earned. It isn't what he was capable of accomplishing. It's what God had promised, what God swore by himself. And the whole picture of the Abrahamic covenant is that which God promised to do in spite of. Folks, we can trust God no matter what he says. We can trust the word of God no matter what he says, even when we can't understand it, because God's word is true. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. How are we saved today? We believe God. We believe God, right? Beautiful passage, Acts 16.31, one of the simplest expressions of what salvation is all about. The jailer says to Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved? How can I work this? How can I get what you got? What's Paul's response? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Wow. Folks, what we can learn from Abraham is he's a man of faith and he trusted the Lord even when he didn't understand where he was going, even when he didn't understand how this was going to take place, having an heir at his age? And Paul says, was it out of works? And if so, Abraham could boast. But no, it was because Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. We have a tremendous heritage, folks, of men and women through the ages, no matter what age it may be, who have walked with God on the basis of not what they could do for God, not in boasting about what they were capable of, but rather simply believing in God and what he had to say. The question is, do we? Do we? Do you know the Lord today? Have you received him? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and understanding the promise that is given? You will be saved. Do you recognize that you're separated from God because of sin? And that God loves you so much that he sent his son to the cross in order to die so that you might be forgiven. I might be forgiven. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus as believers? Are we walking in it? Do we trust the Lord? Or are we constantly trying to do something out of our own effort, out of our own energy, placing ourselves right under the very system that exposed our need of Christ in the first place? Are we walking with the Lord and saying, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. But in you, because of your strength, because of who you are, I can do all things. That's the question. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. 
please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.